Welcome to Conservation Today. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County. I'm your host, Francis Etherington. Today I'll be talking with Daniel Robertson. He's an attorney, an historian, and the former director of the Douglas County Museum. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, Francis. Thank you for having me. We wanted to talk about the Oregon and California, the ONC Act, or the ONC Lands, which is most of the lands that Roseburg BLM manages, as well as Coos Bay BLM. And so you know a lot about the history of these. Apparently they are railroad grants from the 1800s. Well, you know, Francis, I had the privilege of, as you mentioned, being the director of the Douglas County Museum of History and Natural History. And in 1987, the uh, Association of ONC Counties um, celebrated the 50th anniversary of the um, uh, Federal ONC Act. Um, and Ray Dorner, who was at the time the president of the Association of ONC Counties, um, approached me in 1986 and gave me the opportunity of working with the Association of ONC Counties to develop a 50th anniversary history of the ONC uh, lands. Um, and uh, I had an opportunity through that to meet um, such individuals as Dan Goldie, who was one of the original administrators of the ONC lands in Oregon, um, and to interview several people who had been instrumental in the early uh, years of the, the ONC. So uh, through that uh, opportunity, I uh, became um, had the opportunity to do quite a bit of research and become quite familiar with the, the, the history of ONC, the ONC lands, and separately the Coos Bay Wagon Road, um, which was a, a separate entity and a, a, different, a different aspect. So yeah, I, uh, I, it was a privilege uh, to get to meet some of these people who actually were involved in the early development of ONC lands. Um, and very exciting. As a historian and a museum director, we developed an exhibit which traveled all over the state of Oregon um, for the 50th anniversary of the ONC Act. Now, uh, so what were the purpose of the railroad land grants and when did they happen? Well, starting in the 1860s, um, and, uh, the, the federal government had uh, literally hundreds of millions of acres of land. Um, you know, remember we had the Louisiana Purchase and we purchased Alaska in the 18, uh, 1860s. And it, it, what the federal government considered these lands to be was an asset to promote the development of the country. Um, and so they developed a, a number of different approaches to the use of federal land. So you, you might recall that they had the 1850 Donation Land Claim Act, which gave early settlers to Oregon 640 acres if they were married. Very important, actually. It was the first act that actually gave women um, their name on the title of land in this country. Uh, and, and so those kinds of activities, um, they built canals with land grants, they built railroads with land grants. So in 1866, there was an Oregon and California Railroad uh, land grant bill that passed Congress that said that they would give one square mile of land for every mile of railroad that was developed between Portland and Sacramento to develop a rail link on the West Coast. 
And so this was in 1866, and one square mile of land, and so it obviously went down a, approximately where Interstate 5 is now, and they built this railroad mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to link, you know, to for public transportation and to bring in settlers mm -hmm. to settle the West. No, actually, I misspoke. It was 12,800 acres for every mile of railroad. So that's 20 square miles, actually. Um, but it, it, they, uh, they broke up the land within 20 miles of the railroad line. Unfortunately, however, as they developed the railroad down the Willamette Valley, all of that land for 20 miles in each direction was mostly already claimed by settlers. So they extended it out um, and, and gave them 30 and 40 miles on each side of the railroad to make their land claim. So when you look at a map of the ONC lands, you'll see the claims in the Willamette Valley are up in the Cascades, the foothills of the Cascades, and over in the Coast Range. Whereas in Douglas County and Jackson County, as you go south, they're within 20 miles of the railroad on, in the closer in, more dense area of the Owen Sealands. Now, um, what they did, though, is they, they, that land was given in every other section, which gives us the checkerboard land management, land ownership effect. Today, when you look at a map, You'll see this checkerboard with BLM in yellow and private in white. Why did they do every other section? Well, the other sections were, were set aside for the states, um, many of them school lands, um, and, and also for settlement. Um, and it, so they set aside 3.8 million acres in the original Oregon and California Railroad Act. Um, to be available for the development of a railroad, it created quite a competition because starting in Portland, railroads started on both sides of the, the Willamette River competing for each other to, to get south. And of course, they eventually uh, joined together um, at Salem. So you have the east side and the west side. And if, if you're interested today, you can go drive the uh, 99 West, or you can drive 99 East, and that represents those two railroad stems coming down through the Willamette Valley. So, um, the railroad company, by the name of the Oregon and California Railroad Company, got this mm -hmm. land grant, which is why it's dubbed the mm -hmm. Owen Sealands. And the grant was actually um, committed by Congress in 1868. Uh, to the Oregon and California Railroad Company. Um, and uh, by 1872, they had built railroad to Roseburg, um, and um, several, and then they went bankrupt. Um, and they were reconstituted, and um, they developed the railroad, a, a new buyer, um, Henry Villard, if you really want to know, and, and he, he built the railroad on from Roseburg um, uh, through Dillard in 1874, so that the Dillard, Oregon, and California Railroad Depot is actually at the Douglas County Museum, built in 1874 and moved to the museum, and on and eventually reaching Sacramento in 1887. I see. And so um, the, the deal of the Owen Sea lands and the Coos Bay Wagon Road lands, well, tell us a bit about the Coos Bay Wagon Road lands. Where is that located? And if you think about the Coos Bay Wagon Road, think of Interstate 5. Um, during the 1950s, for, for national defense, 
for, for military purposes, we built an interstate system. Well, in 1869, Congress passed a bill that granting, again, land, 84,000 acres in this case, to be set aside for the development of a military road from Coos Bay to Roseburg, opening up. There was no uh, river access from the ocean to the valley um, in the Umpqua, in, not even really in the Rogue. Um, it, it would have been difficult to, to produce major river traffic on anything in southern Oregon rivers. So they, they, they proposed a military road to be developed. That was a, a, a grant that was made in 1869. It, it, it differs a little bit from the ONC Act, but, but um, the, the ONC Railroad Act, but, but it's similar. It was granted just a couple years later, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and all this is after Oregon became a state mm -hmm. in 18... 1859. 1859, right. right. And so the Coos Bay Wagon Road lands also is every other section, mm -hmm. and it goes, it follows the Coos Bay Wagon Road that Correct. we all know. It right. goes from Roseburg to Coos Bay. With 20 miles of each side, just like the river. Miles yeah. of each side, yeah. And so what were the terms of these grants? Well, the original terms of the 1866 Railroad Act was just an out-and-out -out land grant of, of up to 3.8 3 million acres of land. But in 1869, when they, or pardon me, 1868, when they actually allocated the land to the um, ONC, the Oregon and California Railroad Company, they changed the terms. So, um, to begin with, the lands um, were to be um, sold um, by the railroad company to develop capital for the, 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 the um, construction of the railroad. But in 1868, they said it had to be sold in 160-acre pieces to actual settlers for no more than $2.50 an acre. Now, that was a, 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 a sort of a copy of the concept of the Homestead Act. Um, and again, it was promoting the idea of actual settlement of the land in, in Oregon and Northern California. And so uh, 120 acres. 160. 160 acres. acres. Mm -hmm. And for how much money? No more than two dollars and fifty cents an acre. Was that the going rate at the time, or is that, well, was that, that, one, that was the same deal? as the Homestead Act? Oh, the same as Homestead. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And so, and that, and and was the deal with the uh, Coos Bay Wagon Road lands the same? It was the same, um, the same proposal: one hundred and sixty acres to actual settlers for no more than two dollars and fifty cents an acre. So, how did that go? Well, obviously, it didn't go well. The railroad went bankrupt twice, um, so they were definitely having difficulty selling the land. So the, Why? Fir the first, res well, it, first of all, it's it's heavily forested. Um, it's not um, um, valley land with that you come in with your plow and put in your wheat and grow. You know, grow. It's 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 forest lands, um, and and often it's rocky and hilly and and steep in terrain. Um, it, it just it, it wasn't realistic to think of it as as where farmers, the yeoman farmers of America, were going to go settle. Um, so it wasn't, I, it, the, the restrictions probably could be honestly said to be not very realistic. But, um, so the railroad decided, okay, we need to figure out a way to sell this land. So the first thing they did was 
they became involved in what were known as the Oregon land frauds. And that was when they um, would go to, um, oh, say, Skid Row in Portland or anywhere where people who were um, homeless, down and out, and they'd say, I'll give you 50 bucks if you'll come and apply for a 160-acre plot of land. And they would lay out um, uh, several um, sections. That's 640 acres, so you have four settlers. Um, and they would bring them down, and they'd pound a stake into the ground, and then they'd go to the general land office and file a patent for that land um, based on this railroad, quote, selling it to them. Um, and, and then they would get title. Um, and for the money that they received, they would then sell the title to a lumber company. So um, they were essentially using shell people to transfer whole sections to lumber companies um, through, a, through a sale mechanism. Um, and, and that went on um, for 20 years. Um, they, they did that. But eventually they got tired of all this rigmarole, and they, they just out and out started selling large tracts to lumber companies directly, since it didn't appear anybody was really watching. About 1900, however, um, and it might be pointed out, in 1900, it's estimated that nine out of every claim under the Homestead and Timber and Stone Act of 1878 was fraudulent. Nine out of every 10 claims was fraudulent. Ninety percent was um, fraudulent, and and these were there. There was a whole mechanism. There were middlemen, and they were big investors, and they were bribing senators, and bribing land office people, and bribing state land office people. And they were they had a whole mechanism of fraud that was going on to um, to transfer the ownership of of um, heavily forested public land to um, major timber holders. Um, and along came uh, somebody named President Theodore Roosevelt. And President Theodore Roosevelt, with his conservation ethic and with the beginning of the Forest Service and Gifford Pinchot, and a man named Hitchcock, who he made Secretary of the Interior, decided they were going to put an end to this. So they sent a federal prosecutor. His name was Francis Haney. And he came to the West and he began to investigate um, these, the, the sale of land and the transfer of land in the, in the Northwest. Um, and the first person that he convicted of land fraud was a man named Stephen A. Douglas Putter. Sad Putter. S-A-D Putter. And um, Sad Putter uh, was one of those middlemen that had worked with bribing uh, congressional representatives and hiring people to go in and make false claims. Um, and it created a, a just incredible story in all of the newspapers. The, the prosecutor even traced, ch chased a man and his paramour across the country in trains and it was there was there was uh, sex and illegitimate activity and it just it, it big headlines in the newspaper eventually um, they convicted several state officials several land on officials of, of various crimes 
Um, they convicted a U.S. Senator, John Mitchell, from Oregon of crimes. He died shortly thereafter and is the only U.S. Senator to have died in office to not be honored by the United States Senate. Um, they tried the congressman who represented Roseburg, um, uh, Binger Herman, twice and both times with hung juries um, and were unable to convict him. But what that did is it brought attention to what the Oregon and California Railroad Company was doing with their lands. People started to notice what they were doing. They had at that point 2.8 million acres left. They had sold a million acres, um, most of it um, not according to the terms of the land grant. And, they and, and Oregon um, state officials began to start calling for a penalty they need to do something to punish the railroad company for doing it, not obeying the terms of the grants. Was, were they bankrupt at this time, though? No, at this point, um, the ONC had been taken over by Southern Pacific, which was a much bigger railroad company, and the, the Oregon and California Railroad route was a, a, a small part of Southern Pacific. So in 1916, um, the United States Congress passed a bill to revoke the land grant, and they took back 2.8 million acres of ONC land and uh, seven, almost 74,000 acres of Coos Bay Wagon Road land from the, the railroad company. Wow, this is fascinating. I'm sorry, we have to take a break right now, but when we get back, we're going to continue talking about this. I'm your host, Francis Etherington, and we're talking with Daniel Robinson, a historian about the Oregon and California Railroad lands in Douglas County. We'll be right back. We're back with Conservation Today. We're talking with Daniel Robinson. Daniel Robinson was telling us how the U.S. government revested the Oregon and California Railroad lands after they discovered major fraud. Let me ask you a little bit about the fraudulent deals of the railroad. They sold the land in large blocks to timber industry instead of to settlers. This is one of the big <clears throat> problems with, with that they had done. And um, what, what timber industry was around at that time that they sold the land to? Well, first of all, I think it would be a misnomer in um, 1900 to refer to it as the timber industry. It was not so much an industry. Um, there were significant um, uh, owners of timberland from the Midwest um, that had um, essentially exhausted the supply of timber from places like Minnesota and Michigan, and, and, and they were looking for new places to find um, resources. Um, and so they turned to the Northwest as a potential, and in particular, the, the lands in the Northwest in Oregon um, and, Cal and Washington uh, that were west of the Cascade Mountains. Um, they, they, their, their first choice was anything in the, in the coast range, 
um, and their second choice was anything in the foothills. They did um, also express some interest in um, pine lands of, of central Oregon, but but that was kind of a third choice down 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 the down the layer. So um, uh, there were about three or four, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to recall the names off the top of my head. I'd have to look them up. Um, it could have been Warehouser, um, although I'm, 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 I hesitate to say that directly because I'm not sure that he individually was involved in the purchase of lands. But it was uh, folks like Warehouser. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Hammond who was a quite large investor, particularly in the um, north. Oregon uh, coastal uh, range, um, and they used a, a number of different mechanisms to accumulate large holdings of uh, what had been public timberlands. Uh, they used the, the one I described earlier with the false um, um, uh, homesteader coming in under the Homestead Act or under the, the Timber and Stone Act. Um, um, or purchasing from from um, railroad lands, um, and um, they also um, uh, just um, blatantly, um, uh, fraudulently um, uh, created um, settlers that didn't exist and, and made claims for that. The result was that if you think about the significant international paper and and warehouser and. Boise Cascade, the huge landholdings, particularly in the coast range of private lands, um, those were almost all obtained through various uh, fraud um, mechanisms. They also uh, looked for whenever Oregon was selling uh, school lands um, and, or was establishing a claim for school lands. If the Oregon said we're going to we're going to make a claim for school lands on X piece of property, they'd immediately go in and act like they were the already legitimate settlers, so that they could exchange their their patent for their legitimate settlement for another piece of land, which would be even better timberland. Now, uh, on the school lands, when Oregon became a state, I understand that the federal government gave the state of Oregon two sections, two square miles in, out of every 36, every mm -hmm. uh, 10, and it was like mm -hmm. uh, 16 and 36, sections mm -hmm. 16 and 36. And then I also understand that the state of Oregon lost a lot of that assets through fraudulent deals that you're describing. Yeah, they sold it or they, tra or they traded for other kinds of lands. So they would actually trade high-quality timberland for a rocky, stony manxide. Why did they do that? Well, fraud. I mean, you know, they were, the, the land office was bribed, and, and um, you know, it, it was not out of goodwill. <laughs> so the lands were revested. So well, the lands were revested to the United States government in 1916. 1916. And, and they uh, took them, they actually took mm -hmm. these lands mm -hmm. back, but they didn't give them to the Bureau of Land Management at that 2. time. 2.8 million acres of, of uh, land that had been granted for the railroad and uh, almost 74,000 acres that had been granted for the Coos Bay Wagon Road were revested. But to the uh, Department the, of Interior. The, the railroad immediately sued oh. and said, you have taken away our property. Um, and so uh, the suit went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in 1919, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government had to buy the land. 
at the anticipated price. So the railroad got $2.50 an acre for the um, almost 2.9 million acres of land that had been revested. At that point, um, the, the, the federal government said, well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna harvest timber off this land. Um, and the great debate began in 1919, which didn't end until 1937, about how the counties were going to be um, reimbursed for the fact that um, almost 2.9 million acres of land had been jerked out of their tax base because the railroad, of course, was a taxing entity, and, and now they were not taxable. And uh, through those years, um, uh, a few times, the federal government said, we'll send you some money. And they would send them some money, quote, in lieu of property taxes. Um, but the federal government didn't like that. They didn't want to ever be perceived as being a taxable entity that was subject to property tax by counties in, in Oregon. Um, and, and so they were never willing to admit, um, and with one later exception, that that was what was going on, that they were paying property tax on their land. Um, and so they, we go through this 18-year period when things are kind of in limbo. Um, there, there is some harvest, some theft of harvest. I mean, you know, um, people going in and just taking trees and, you know, selling them to the local mill. Um, and and uh, that process um, is while there is a negotiation going on about what to do about these lands. Finally, in 1937, um, through a series of negotiations, um, the counties were pushing for property tax. They said, we want to, we want to have an assessment of these lands. Um, we want to assess them like we would any other timberland in our, in our community, and we want you to pay property taxes. Or we want you to pay federal money in lieu of property taxes based on the assessed value of the property. The federal government didn't want to do that, so they came up with this scheme of uh, timber receipts. And they said, what we will do is we will give you 75% of the harvest, gross harvest receipts off of these lands. 25% will go to the management of, uh, you know, of managing to, to do the harvest. And that was what the um, ONC Act of 1937 provided. The counties objected. They fought it tooth and nail. But Congress passed it. Um, the act additionally said um, the following. Because the federal government at this point in the 1930s was very focused on conservation, think about what's happening in the 1930s. We have the Dust Bowl. We have them planting trees in the Midwest. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. They, you know, conservation is very important in this country in 1937. And so the timber, uh, the, the ONC Act says that the lands will be um, maintained for sustained yield forestry and for protection of watersheds, for a um, stable economy of, of, the, of the region, and for recreation. So um, uh, what we have at that point is a discussion about what do those provisions actually mean in terms of the management of the land. One additional provision was, however, that 
starting in 1937, um, the counties would get 50% of the 50%, not 75%, and the additional 25% would go to the federal government to pay them back for what the $2.50 an acre that they had to pay for the railroad. It took until 1952 for the, the ONC lands over that 15-year period at 25% of the harvest to pay the federal government back for the amount of money that they'd had to pay the railroad for the land due to the Supreme Court decision of 1919. In 1952, um, uh, and before that actually, and after that, if we think about what was going on, we had huge amounts of private timberland in Oregon, and, and um, they were harvesting um, massive amounts of trees off private timberlands. Um, especially after World War II, when the housing boom. Right. And, and it's important to note, in Roseburg, there essentially was no timber industry in Roseburg prior to World War II. Um, there, were, you know, there was a, a few mills that were producing for local use, there was no international or national market that, that Roseburg was supplying from its, from its timber. Besides, the Coast Range timber was much more available, easier to get into the market. Uh, huge mills at Toledo and outside of Newport and so on producing that had been actually built by the federal government during World War I for the Spruce Division um, and then sold to private industries for a penny on the dollar. Um, so it, the industry was really along the coast prior to World War II. Um, the, after World War II, um, the, the industry began to develop in, in Douglas County, and particularly with the invention of exterior plywood. And in fact, the glue that made exterior plywood possible was invented by um, a, a man named Cliff Pearson, who worked for Roseburg Forest Products, um, and made Roseburg Forest Products the exclusive provider of exterior plywood. And exterior plywood was used to build the interstate highway system in this country. So, I mean, it was an, an amazing benefit. Roseburg was the plywood capital of America, not the timber capital of America. Um, in any case, um, during this period from 1937, and we could say all the way into the 1960s, um, there was so much private timber on the market that, it, that the price was really quite depressed. But additionally, remember that checkerboard square? There, there was a little problem, and that was how do you get access to those timberlands um, when um, you have no consolidated um, uh, holding, like with, for example, the Forest Service, where it's all one consolidated piece. Right, you depend on various landowners to cross your land right. to get to... So between 37 and 52, they did some consolidation. Uh, about 250,000 acres were consolidated and switched around. Wow. They began thinking, well, maybe we can consolidate all this. That didn't work, uh, particularly because the private landholders wanted a benefit in doing that, so they, they weren't really interested in a one-on-one -on -one trade. They, they'd like a one-for-five or one-for-three, you know. Um, and so that didn't work. And um, they were having trouble getting private timberland owners to allow them to have um, easement across their land. Um, and so along came uh, the man I mentioned, Dan Golding. And he convinced the counties to, again, forgo the 25% that uh, had been used to pay back 
the federal government. Because the federal government had been paid back what they paid for that land in 1950. In 1919. Oh, they, by 1952, they'd been paid back. By 1952, they'd been yeah. paid back. And so now, yeah. the I can imagine the counties wanted their full 75%. Wanted their full 75%. But um, the, the administration of the ONC lands in Oregon convinced them that they, if they could use that 25% to buy easements, to replant forest lands when they were harvested, to build roads, to build bridges, to do things to make these lands accessible. And if they made them accessible, they'd be able to harvest more. Um, and so between 1952 and 1969, there was a huge effort by the ONC to make deals um, to get access to these checkerboard squares of land all up and down um, the central part of Oregon. And as far as that goes with the, with the Coos Bay Wagon Road as well. Um, and is this what brought upon what we now know as the reciprocal road right-of-way agreements? Correct. Where um, the, uh, the ONC, or the, the Bureau of Land Management, which it became under the Department of the Interior, um, would agree to um, uh, maintain a road um, through a whole portion of land, even across the private section of lands, in exchange for an easement so that they could have access to their land. And so you'll, you'll see many BLM roads that are identified as BLM roads on private lands um, because they're providing access to pieces of, of ONC BLM land. So if we think about it, from 1937, for the first 30 years, there was extremely small amounts of revenue developed from ONC lands paying to the counties very minimal amounts of, of actual revenue. Because most um, of the logging was being done on private land. And it, correct. And the price was low, and they didn't have access to the, to the, to the timber to begin with. Um, so it was, it was a very um, meager uh, distribution of revenue to the counties. Um, so uh, at this point, I, w I want to go back to the Coos Bay Wagon Road for a second, because it was different. In um, oh. one very significant point, it was not part of the 1937 ONC Act. It was forgotten, was not included in the 1937 ONC Act. A separate act was passed um, to benefit the Coos Bay Wagon Road in 1939. And the 1939 Act had all the same provisions as the ONC Act, except that it also provided that there was an option for assessment and payment in lieu of taxes that, that did not exist in the 1937 Act. And today there's quite a bit of controversy um, with Coos County particularly that um, are arguing that they should be demanding in lieu of tax payments from the Coos Bay Wagon Road lands rather than timber harvest receipts. Um, and and that's, that's part of the debate. It's it, not available under the ONC Act, but it is available under the Coosway Wagon Road Act of 1939. Did it also differ somehow in the uh, surrounding timberland assessed taxes would apply to the Coos Bay Wagon Road lands, but not to the ONC lands? It was different in that way? Correct. Yeah, there, you would never bother to assess the value of ONC lands um, for you know assessed value compared to 
surrounding land um, because you, you, there is no in lieu of taxes proposal in the ONC Act, but with the Coos Bay Wagon Road there is. So if the nearby uh, industrial forest land was taxed low, then the in lieu of taxes would also be low for Correct. the Coos Bay Wagon Road land. Of course, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Which is, would, would they still make more money then if they got the in lieu of taxes than they would for 50% of the harvest receipts? Uh, yeah. yeah. That's a question I don't have an answer to. I, it, it would, I think it would depend on year by year and uh, what kind of harvest level you were able to produce. And so they always take this option of in lieu of taxes as opposed to the 50% receipts. You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if they have been. I know that that's a controversy and an issue that's been addressed by particularly the Coos County commissioners um, looking for, uh, saying that they prefer the in lieu of taxes. I don't know which they've actually been receiving. I've seen some articles recently in the News Review that talk about the Douglas County commissioners complaining about the amount of money they're getting from the Coos Bay Wagon Road lands. Correct. And they're down, um, you know, from... Uh, in the range, in, in the um, 250, 300,000 uh, per year level to, to down in the 30 to 40,000. Because yeah. it's based on the adjoining lands assessed taxes as opposed to 50%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey, so, you know, I have another question to ask mm -hmm. as long as you've gone back to the Coupe Bay Wagon Lands. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I understand that the BLM now manages the ONC lands and the Coos Bay Wagon Road lands. Mm -hmm. and, um, but every other section is mostly owned by industry. So we can find out how, due to the land fraud deals, that the Department of Interior now manages the ONC lands. How is it that the timber industry got all the other sections? In each individual case, I don't think it's possible for me to answer that question. You'd have to look at the, the, the land ownership record of that particular land. They could have been claimed by settlers that then sold them to, um, to uh, timber industry. Um, for example, on the property I live, live on, um, there is 160 acres adjacent to our property that was once owned by my wife's family that was sold to uh, a, a timber company that is between our land and a piece of um, ONC timber land. Um, so, you know, there, there have been obviously real settlers that owned land and sold them to timber companies. Um, there, it could be that they, they bought them um, because they were 640 acres of school lands and they either bought them or traded for them. Um, um, you know, there could be any number of routes. Um, there's no doubt that some of the lands, particularly in the Coast Range, um, um, were obtained through fraudulent claims um, in the 1890s, 1900. Um, what happened with, with the convictions and the trials um, uh, of the land frauds was that the, the perpetrators and the people who accepted the bribes um, and, and the, the middlemen were all charged with crimes. The landowners, the timber companies, were never in any way addressed. The people who paid the money were never um, in any way um, prosecuted. There were no lands taken back from anyone. So um, those large land holdings um, were created and remained. 
Now, many of them, uh, some of those companies did go bankrupt, um, particularly in the 30s, and huge sections of uh, private timberland was returned to public ownership for, uh, for tax foreclosures. So if we think about the Tillamook Forest, where the Tillamook Fire was, um, after that fire, almost all that land went back to the counties um, for tax foreclosures. Um, we can also think of the Elliott Forest and, and that whole set of uh, consolidation of state land. So um, when some of this land went back to the federal government in the 1930s, uh, um, to know to the counties, oh, to yeah, the, the counties. counties would foreclose, not the federal government. Um, so I so. thought that was the, the the source of the public domain lands because the BLM manages two kinds of lands: mm -hmm. the ONC lands, the Coos Bay Wagon Road lands, and the other kind is public domain. Yeah, right, and those are lands that have never been in, in private ownership. They they were part of the public domain to begin with. I see. Well, I take that back. The ONC railroad lands were in private lands to some city at some point, but but the public domain lands, and, and if we think of the huge grasslands in eastern Oregon, or the fact that 80% of Nevada is owned by the federal government, all of that was all federal land um, from um, various aspects. And you, it, when anybody talks about the federal government owning land and their right to own land, well, think about it. I mean, they bought the land in the Louisiana Purchase. They bought the land from Russia in Alaska. They took the land in the Southwest from Mexico as a prize of war. They, you know, they made a treaty which resulted in the Oregon country becoming part of the United States and, and federal land with Britain. So um, the, the federal government has owned land ever since 1787 um, and has used that land for various purposes as we were discussing earlier, for economic development, later for conservation and for recreational uses. So there's a, you know, the federal government has always been a landowner um, and always had various purposes for the use of the land that they own. When they tried to settle the West with uh, the donation land claims, the railroad land grants and such, was there a restriction on who could homestead those lands? You had to be an American citizen or declaring your intent to become an American citizen to uh, make a claim under the Homestead Act. I assume that was true under the Donation Land Act, although I, I, I can't say that I've ever noted that. But Were Native Americans U.S. citizens? No. Were slaves American citizens or black people? Not prior to um, the Civil War unless they were freed as individuals. But remember, Oregon voted um, uh, nine to one um, uh, against allowing free blacks to live in the state of Oregon, and that law remained on the books until 1927. Wow. And so the land grants only went to white European settlers? Correct. Correct. So uh, we have uh, the ONC Act up through 1969. Um, we're beginning now, uh, by 1969, to have access. We're going to talk about that right when we come back from a break. It's fascinating. Uh, this is Francis Etherington on Conservation Today, and we're talking with Daniel Robinson, historian. And we're talking about the settlement of the West in Oregon.
We're back from break. This is Conservation Today, and we're talking with Daniel Robinson, historian, former director of the Douglas County Museum, about the history of Oregon and the settlement of Oregon, the Oregon and California-owned sea lands, the railroad land grants, and how they were revested due to land fraud. They were revested back to the federal government uh, in 19... Uh, 1916 was the original Revestment Act, yes. And then in 1936, 37, we had some acts uh, detailing how the federal government would manage those lands. It was a Conservation Act saying they had to protect water sources and for recreation and sustainable harvest. And uh, But at that time, uh, there wasn't a lot of pressure to log the federal lands because private land uh, there wasn't a big demand for timber until after World War II. Well, remember, the timber industry was very prevalent along the coast, and so there was a lot of pressure on, on um, forest lands uh, along the coast in the coast range um, prior to World War II. Um, the pressure on the um, the inland forests, on the on the forests on the east side of the coast range and in the foothills of the Cascades, um, didn't begin until. Uh, after World War II. And most, if you think about it, the, the vast majority of the lands in the foothills of the Cascades are federal forest lands. So it's the, the east side of the coast range that um, was the most intense pressure following World War II. Um, and most of it was private, um, and there was a lot of a logging that took place there. Um, the, the timber industry um, could perceive and, and did perceive that um, they could busily work to uh, use their private lands, harvest their private lands, and after the adoption of the Oregon Forest Practices Act, they were then forced to replant them. So they, they, they were harvesting and replanting their lands um, well into the 1960s at a fairly rapid late rate. It, 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 you know, I hesitate to use the work, but they were harvesting their own their own timber. They perceived that waiting for them after if, if they ran out of private land timber, waiting for them were all of the forests on the federal lands that would be available to them um, if they ran out of private land timber. I said, you know, they were forced to replant. It, it's important to note that. Um, um, T.J. Starker, who was a, a forest professor at Oregon State University, in the 1930s began to buy up blocks of forest land individually. And um, these were lands where they had run a railroad in, and then they'd have a, 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 a central location, and they'd harvest in a circle. And all of the corners of these pieces of property still had standing timber on them. And he went in and he would buy these already cut over lands. He would cut the corners with the new technology of having a cat and chainsaws. Um, and that would pay for the land. And then he would replant. Everybody thought he was crazy. What are you doing replanting trees? I mean, you know, this is, you're wasting your money. That was before the Oregon Forest Practices Act. What year was that about? This was in the early 1930s. So, How did um, he get seedlings to replant, I wonder? I, I don't know that, yeah. actually. 
But uh, I, I had the privilege of doing an oral interview with him, and, and it was out of his practices, and he was one of the influences that helped create the Oregon Forest Practices Act, which requires replanting of land after harvest. So, it, so they, much not much of the private land that was clear cut before 1930 was never replanted. Correct. Correct. And I wonder what the state of those lands are. How, how they, they differ. They, they would grow back naturally over time. Uh, you know, and, and, and I, I don't know how quickly or what kind of species would would develop there. I'm, I'm not that. Kind I think of this expert. is the lands that that Coos Bay BLM. Um, targets with alder conversion, they say they grow back in solid alder instead of conifer. Could be. Could be. So, um, as we uh, approach the late 1960s and uh, begin to look into the 1970s, we now have easement access to OOC lands. Um, and the, the pressure is beginning to build. Um, and the price is, is rising due to a reduction in the availability of private land stocks. Um, and, you know, we have a housing boom across this country. Um, and so it, we begin to see harvest on ONC lands. And so pre-1969, that first 30, 32 years, very little receipts to the county, very small uh, returns. Beginning in, in the early 1970s, the, the returns, the amount of harvest, as we, as we start ramping up toward 1, 1.2 billion um, board feet of harvest off ONC lands, um, the, the receipts begin to increase to the point that in 1978, 1979, and 1980, a full 25% of all of the ONC receipts received between 1937 and 2000 are paid out in those three years. Um, what percentage? A full 25% wow, of all the receipts from 1937 to 2000 were paid out in 1978, 79, 80. So this is when Douglas County got a lot of money from the 50%. Sure. So we build a, a justice center, which is a perfectly good thing to do. We expand the museum. We, you know, we, there was a building New library. in the county. Um, and and uh, as Ray Dorner told me, we build up huge stocks of, of gravel all over the county. Those were Douglas County's bank accounts, all those gravel piles all over Douglas County. Um, and then 1980, a recession hits, and things uh, drop off. And by 1983, Douglas County is laying off employees right and left, and, and we have a, a substantial reduction. Again, in 1984, it begins to pick up. Um, and by 1988, 1989, 1990, we have another three-year period where 25% of all the receipts, so in six years, 1978, 79, 80, and 1988, 89, 90, 50% I can admit, I know now, I mean, it's easy to understand why Douglas County and the timber industry can work together so well because the more the timber industry cuts public land, the more money Douglas County makes and the more money the industry makes. Sure. And so they became strong partners the, through the, the OOC. The only place where their interests separate is Douglas County has an interest in high timber prices. 
the, the, the industry would prefer the prices to be lower, right? So they, they're, they're not exactly aligned in, in, in that sense. Meanwhile, uh, back, back at the ranch in Washington, D.C., uh, in the mid, in, in the 1973, 74, 75, we have a series of environmental acts that include the Endangered Species Act, the Forest uh, Land Management Act, um, and, you know, definite Clean Water Act. National Environmental Policy Act. Yeah. We have all of these, these environmental, under Richard Nixon. Thank you, in, Richard in, Nixon. In, in, a, in a Republican administration. Um, and um, it, it takes a decade for um, the federal government to recognize that these subsequent acts apply to the management of um, forest lands in Oregon under the ONC Act. Um, and this is a controversy. Today, um, a lot of the litigation that is uh, sponsored by the Association of ONC Counties um, and, and the, the recipients of the receipts are to argue that these subsequent um, um, acts, that environmental acts of the 1970s, do not apply to the ONC Act because it's a special provision of sustained yield forestry, watershed protection, um, uh, st stable uh, economy in the community, and recreation. Um, and, and so far they've lost in, 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 in all the litigation to try to say that the Endangered Species Act or the Clean Water Act or it does not apply to these federal lands. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not into predictions of future Supreme Court decisions, but, but you know, that's the case so far. So the, the, the result is that um, because of the Endangered Species Act um, and because of the you know, Environmental Act, um, there has been a substantial reduction in the amount of harvest. What that reduction really means in another sense is that the definition of sustained yield forestry has changed. And, and so it isn't that the BLM isn't managing ONC lands under sustained yield forestry, they are. It's that they're managing them under sustained yield forestry when forestry includes protections of animals and various species beyond the trees themselves. Um, so the, the debate is, is sustained yield forestry uh, what the timber industry practices um, with 40-year rotations and um, tree farming? I believe the timber industry defines it as you cut all the mature forests and you turn them all into plantations, and they you don't cut more of those plantations than what the plantations grow. Right. So there's 80 but, billion board feet annually um, growing on the uh, the ONC lands, and if you think of an 80-year rotation, that means you can cut a billion board feet a year, um, and and and. and that's the, the calculation that we often hear uh, related to the, to the ONC lands. Well, um, it, the, that would be in violation of the Clean Water Act, the um, Endangered Species Act, and the Forest Management Acts of, of Congress. But, but additionally, it, it also ignores the ONC Act because the ONC Act says protect watersheds. And the protection of watersheds requires a significant reduction in um, the area that's available for harvest under the ONC Act. Um, almost every uh, significant community 
um, in the Willamette Valley is dependent upon their water supply from watersheds that go through or are initiated in the uh, ONC lands. Um, and so uh, the watershed issue um, is significant. It also applies to the stable economy portion of the ONC Act. Is it, if we look at the history of the ONC with the ups and downs and the, the recessions and so on and so on, the question is, is maximum harvest uh, amounts over the, the, the um, uh, 70 or 80 years of the uh, ONC Act, um, is that stability? And if it's not stability, what do you do to make it a stable um, harvest level and a stable economy for your communities? Those are all charged under the ONC Act. It, so it isn't just that the lands are to be managed for timber harvest. It's that the lands are to be managed for sustained yield timber harvest, protection of the watersheds, stable economy, and of course recreation. And, and I don't want to belittle recreation. It's it's very important, right? So, for example, we have the um, National Scenic um, uh, uh, Byway that covers the entire uh, North Umpqua River and then down the Rogue River back into Medford. Um, so any uh, ONC lands within that uh, National Scenic Byway um, would become ineligible for, for uh, harvest within the metrics of, because that's a recreational use of, the, of those lands. Um, and, and, and that's another portion of, of the act itself. Indeed, it's different than they perceived in 1937. I, you know, let's face it, it's not, no one perceived that driving up the North Umpqua would be considered recreation in 1937. You couldn't do it, first of all. But second of all, even if you could have done it, they, they wouldn't have you know, picked that out as, as, a, as a normal recreation use. But, but today, that is recreation, and it's a major recreation source. Um, and a major part of the economy of Douglas County, stable economy. Fascinating. And so here we are today arguing about sustained yield, where I believe uh, civil culturists in the BLM do believe it simply means you don't cut more than it grows, and it doesn't include sustainability of the ecosystem. And uh, including the spotted owl, of course, was the first species under the Endangered Species Act that slowed down the harvest on BLM lands, and then the marble roulette on the coastal forest, and now we have the coho salmon that are also protected under the Endangered Species Act. And so, obviously, the Endangered Species Act still applies to ONC lands. And uh, when the spotted owl was protected under the, under the Endangered Species Act, in the late 90s, the federal government tried several schemes to reimburse the counties the money that they were missing from the hugely high harvest levels of the past three years, or those six specific years you talked about. Douglas County came to think that this was normal, that they were going to get this money annually from the ONC lands, and when the Endangered Species Act kicked in for the spotted owl, and logging was reduced, the federal government just handed over money to the counties, the ONC counties, through several acts. What you're describing is the Secure Rural Schools Act. 
and it isn't just ONC counties. Um, this was federal money that was granted to um, counties all over the United States that were impacted by environmental regulations and other um, acts of, of Congress um, in terms of revenue and job production. So it, it you know, it could have been um, a coal mine shut down in in um, Virginia, and that county would receive money under the Secure Rural Schools Act as compensation um, for the loss of revenue and jobs um, due to coal mining regulations. So it, it went across the country. Um, but indeed, they did use uh, 1988, 1989, and 1990 as, quote, the average um, uh, ONC receipt years. Um, and uh, as uh, any researcher will quickly uh, be able to point out, those were not average years by any means. Um, but uh, also, the, the um, Secure Rural Schools Act, um, it depends on who you speak with in Congress about what it really is intended to do. Um, uh, many Republicans in Congress believed that the Secure Rural Schools Act was a stopgap measure that was designed to give uh, counties and communities throughout the country time to uh, diversify, to change their economic bases, and to find new sources of revenue to uh, sustain um, their operations. Um, and, and then others um, thought that it was just a good way to get reelected to Congress. But, but uh, uh, there was no one who really believed that um, the Secure Rural Schools Act was in, a lieu of, in lieu of taxes or some permanent um, funding source um, to uh, fund counties that um, weren't seeking alternative ways of, of funding their operations. So um, this came about in 2000, Correct. and then the, the funding to the counties, to Dallas County, was gradually reduced over the years with the assumption that they would find um, other, that they would diversify their economy here, which is difficult in Douglas County to diversify because, let's say, we have a great grape growing industry, but the county doesn't get 50% of the receipts from growing grapes. They only get 50% of the receipts from logging timber on the BLM lands. And so it's a difficult to break away from that money source. And so the, the Secure Rural Schools legislation just gave Douglas County money in lieu of logging ONC lands because of the spotted owl uh, requirements to reduce that logging. And uh, eventually it um, was reduced and then it was threatened to be did away with and it, it had a miraculous comeback for several times. And I understand that in the last couple of years now, it has stopped. It has stopped. Um, Senator Wyden does, um, who was the initial uh, primary sponsor of the Secure Rules Act, um, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, um, and he has um, repeatedly said that he would like to to re refund it, um, but but uh, it it has not been refunded under the current um, congressional um, perceptions. I um, and uh, and then Douglas County is uh, definitely um, between a, a rock and a hard place. Um, 
with both state and federal um, um, laws. Um, the state laws which we passed um, measures, um, oh gosh, I'm not going to remember the two, the property tax measures that we passed, I'm not going to remember the numbers, but we did uh, set a maximum of $15 per thousand um, without special circumstances um, for our property taxes in Oregon. Um, and um, the mix of, of property taxes were then frozen. And if one, uh, if there's a district that's at maximum, like Roseburg is, for example, and one of these taxing entities gets a permanent increase um, in their, their proportion of taxes, all the others get a reduction to keep it at $15 a thousand. So Douglas County is uh, one of the 20% lowest property tax um, uh, counties in Oregon. Now that doesn't mean you're still paying $15 a thousand in Roseburg. So it isn't, we're not saying Roseburg is a low tax environment. We're saying that Douglas County gets a very small share of that $15 a thousand in comparison to other counties in Oregon. So Multnomah County gets a larger share of now the $15. Why, why does Douglas County get a smaller share? Well, because me. it had a lower tax rate to begin with because it was receiving O&C receipts and it didn't need to turn to property taxes as its revenue source. It was using the, the, the uh, federal timber receipts as its revenue source. And, and when the law was passed, it all got frozen at 1990 levels, and Douglas County was stuck with what it had. So under state law, Douglas County can't just go out and get a, a, an increase in, in its uh, property tax base. First of all, voters would have to vote for that, and as we've seen in Josephine County, that's not a, not a likely or easy process. Or as we saw with um, the library or any number of other issues out there. Um, so uh, there, there, there's that problem. They, they can't just go to that. Um, and um, we also uh, um, tend to be um, a conservative um, um, community that votes for conservative leaders. Um, and so uh, we have seen that our leaders are not particularly supportive of the various kinds of revenue sources that could be developed um, to look at various aspects of, of operation of Douglas County government. So, um, like that, oh, like hotel motel taxes, like a, a, a library district tax base, um, it, it, um, uh, marijuana sales uh, receipts, um, uh, you know, we, we, you know we, we can think of a number. It, it took us, remember, it took us uh, up until we were almost, we, we were chewing into our reserves before we started charging to use the dump. You know, it, 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 it's a, a been a long-term, um, you know, problem. Um, we didn't start charging for admission to the museum until 1996, um, uh, which, you know, is, is, is another example. So, um, we, we, we're faced with a, a dilemma. And, and that is, um, if we're not interested in various revenue uh, opportunities, um, then uh, either the federal government is going to increase harvest levels um, on um, uh, ONC lands to provide revenues for the county, um, or uh, we're going to cut services. Those, those are the two choices. Now, uh, what we hear a lot is that 
we need to cut more trees because we want to increase jobs. The timber is just the most recent form of um, natural resource that has uh, come, become dominant and begun to decline. Um, we had ranching, which became dominant and declined. We had hops, we had prunes, we had turkey growing. Um, it, it, we have had a number of different kinds of economies in Douglas County. Grapes may be the next, the next version of that. Or maybe uh, there are people planting figs. Um, I understand that uh, hazelnuts are being uh, uh, planted at, at a great uh, level. Um, there, there are a number of agricultural kinds of opportunities that are being pursued. Um, and so uh, though one of those might be the next big employer in, in Douglas County. And it wouldn't be the first time that we had a new, um, a new giant raise in our midst and become the dominant force. I don't think we're ever going to not harvest timber in Douglas County. That's not the point. Um, we are always going to do that. Um, they're always going to harvest timber on ONC lands because it is sustained yield forestry. That's what the act requires. It's not going away. Um, it's just a question of what that level is. Right, right. Um, and that's what history teaches us. That it's not, it's not, this isn't Daniel talking. This is, this is what history teaches us. Or if you look at the sweep of history, that's what's happened. Right. Well, Daniel, it's been fascinating talking with you. Uh, any final words for the public here? Well, I, I, my words are always the same. And if we don't know our past, we're doomed to repeat it. Um, and it's very important, I think, that we that we understand that um, that there was a past. Um, if you live in Roseburg, for example, just as a quick quick vision, um, in, until 1927, Roseburg was the division point for the railroad. The biggest employer in Roseburg was was the Southern Pacific or the ONC Railroad. Uh, when it went out of town, this place dried up, and everybody thought the world had come to an end. And then in 1934, we got the VA Medical Center, and suddenly the, the, the community boomed, and everything was wonderful, and we had the VA Medical Center. Um, and, and then we had the development of plywood, and, 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 and that, again, you know, brought, us, brought us forward. Keep working at it. Keep inventing ways we can do it again. Um, and and the, 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 the statement that we only need to get back in the woods is, is not enough. We need to do something more than that. Well, thank you very much, yeah. Daniel Robertson, uh, former director of the Douglas County Museum, attorney and historian. This is Francis Southerton, your host for Conservation Today. Uh, this um, show will be streamed from the KQUA radio station website. And we'll see you next week at the same time for Conservation Today. Thank you again, Daniel. Yeah.